Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Uh, thank you that we can come and behold words of life, words that are, are living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we ask that you, you conform our hearts to what you have to say. May you, may you reveal yourself to be bigger after we hear your word preached than before we came in this morning. And uh, may we respond to, to who you are and all you've done. Help me, Lord, as I, as I present you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning we're going to be in, in Colossians, our third message in our, in our series, Walking with Christ, from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Last week, we, we looked at Paul's thanksgiving to God for these Christians. We saw his, his particular care for them as he highlighted the gracious work of God by giving them faith, love, and hope. He, he, God has brought them to an understanding of the whole gospel through Epaphras, and, and Paul takes time to highlight this. If you remember Epaphras, he first heard the gospel from Paul and had come to Paul as Paul sits imprisoned in Rome. And he comes and reports to Paul all that God has done in the Colossian Christians. And, and Paul responds by giving thanks to God. But Epaphras doesn't just report what God has done. He also reports that there have been some in the midst of these Colossian Christians who, who are saying that, that they need something more, that, that Epaphras didn't give them everything they needed. Uh, there's, there's some other message they need to hear. There's some other experience they need to have. There's some other knowledge they need to gain. There are those saying to the Colossian Christians that what they had received wasn't, wasn't all they need. It was incomplete. It wasn't quite full. This false teaching that was circulating among the, the Colossian church, this young church, uh, was, was saying that there is more to true religion than what Epaphras has told you. And in whatever these false teachers put forth, there was, there was some aspect of you need to have a deeper knowledge and you need to have more power in order to really be walk out true religion. Epaphras has, has held out on you. He hasn't, he hasn't disclosed to you the fullness of the religious life. And last week we saw how Paul highlights that they have already received all they need in Jesus Christ. They have already heard and understood the word of truth which is bearing, in, bearing fruit and increasing both in them and throughout the world. So today we're going to look at this second paragraph that Paul opens his letter to the Colossians with. And it, it details Paul's prayer for the Colossian Christians. Paul often begins his letters with a reference to prayer, and sometimes he, he records an actual prayer. Sometimes he just mentioned that he prays for them. Here we have what he prays for. He, he details what he is praying for. And this, like the paragraph we looked at last week in verses 3 through 8, verses 9 through 14, just one long sentence that Paul puts together. And we break it up in English just for, for readability. But it's, it's just one, one big thought meant to be kept together that Paul is communicating. And as we look at this prayer together, we will see that, that Paul, Paul's prayer is, is for just what the false teachers have been putting forth. It's to address what they have been putting forth. Paul's prayer is for knowledge and power. Knowledge of God's will and, and power to walk it out. Paul, through the report of this prayer, wants the Colossians to know that they have all they need in Christ. 
And, and God, in His infinite wisdom, wants us to know that we have all we need in Christ. Paul's prayer for knowledge and power for the Colossian Christians is found in Christ. The answer to that prayer is found in Christ. And the same is true for us today. All the knowledge and power we need for this life is found in Christ. All the knowledge and power we need for this life is found in Christ. That's the big idea we'll be getting at this morning as we look at Paul's prayer. All the power and knowledge that you need for this life is found in Christ. And as, as we look to this, bear in mind one thing, one implication for your life on this. This is Paul's prayer that he records, his prayer for the Colossians. And the question you need to be asking yourself is, do I pray for these things? both for, for myself and for other believers. If we really believe that Christ is all-sufficient, do we pray like that? Do we pray that others would see more of Christ, that they would know more of Him and experience more of His power by the Spirit in their lives? So be asking yourself that as we, as we go. And, and let's begin by opening God's Word together to Colossians 1, beginning in verse 9. This is the Word of God. Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the Word of God. This morning we're going to look at this passage in its, in its two movements. We're going to see first Paul's prayer for knowledge, and second, Paul's prayer for living. So first, Paul's prayer for knowledge. This is in verse 9. The passage begins, and so. And so. Clearly, Paul is picking up right from where he began. The reason Paul reports that we have not ceased to pray for you is contained in that preceding paragraph, particularly in verses 4 and 5. Paul writes, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, because of your faith, love, and hope, because of how you've responded to the message of the gospel, we pray all the more for you. Paul writes, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now for Paul to say that, that they have not ceased to pray does not mean that he prays nonstop, just incessantly. It means that whenever Paul prays, which he without doubt does often, he prays for these Colossian Christians who, as you may remember from, from last, the last two weeks, he does not even know these Christians. He's never met them before. He only knows them through Epaphras. And brothers and sisters, this is the kind of heart that we are to have towards other believers. We should so marvel at the work of God's grace in the lives of others that we can't help but pray for them and thank God for them. Paul is so affected and, and stirred up by God's miraculous work in others to build up his church, to, to save the lost, to grow people into conformity with Christ, that he always prays for them. May we do the same for others. 
May we do the same for, for our brothers and sisters in Grace Church. And may we do the same for brothers and sisters that we know outside of this church and those that we don't even know. May we be so caught up in all that God is doing and His marvelous grace that is at work. So Paul, Paul often prays for them. What does he pray for? Well, he tells us right here in, in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Paul prays, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul prays first that the Colossian Christians would know the will of God. Now, we first have to answer this question, what is knowledge of, of this will? What is knowledge of God's will? The Bible speaks of the will of God in, in two general ways. Now, the first deals with God's sovereignty over all things. At around the same time that Paul's writing this letter, he also wrote a letter to the Ephesians church. So, Paul is sitting in prison in Rome, and he writes a letter to the Colossians. He writes a letter to the Ephesians. And in Ephesians 1.11, he speaks of the will of God in this way when he writes that God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things go according to how God has determined them to go. So we can refer to this as, as God's sovereign will. So that's one way to understand God's will. That's one way the Bible speaks of God's will, His sovereign will. Now, is that what Paul's praying that the Colossians have knowledge of? Is Paul praying that, that they might know God's plans and uh, what God has chosen to do? In one sense, is he praying that they be Christian fortune tellers? No. No, that's not what Paul's praying for. And Paul uses the will of God in this context to lay out God's, lay out God's decreed will. It's God's will of, of command. We see this same will of God phrase in Paul's letter to the Roman church. Romans 12, verse 2. Paul writes this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The decreed will is about knowing what God commands of us, what God requires. It's about knowing that which is good and acceptable and perfect to God. And as Paul highlights here in, in verse 9, this comes through, through spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul prays that the Colossian Christians not be filled with knowledge of the plans of God, but with knowledge of the, the commands of God, knowing how they ought to live in light of who God is. Knowing God, knowing God as He's revealed Himself to be in His Word, this is the pathway to all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The heresy, the false teaching, the Colossian heterodoxy in some way put forth something more. It put forth something besides Christ. You need this extra special knowledge if you're really going to know God and please God. Paul is saying that you don't need something else. You have what you need in God, so only know Him more. Now this knowledge is not knowledge for its own sake. No, no. This knowledge is knowledge that leads to a transformed life. This knowledge demands something of us. Knowledge of God and His will, it, it changes us. It changes how we live. And so Paul prays that the Colossians be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This spiritual wisdom and understanding, it refers to this knowledge involving that which is, that which is spiritually important. And it's the Holy Spirit that works this out. So how do we today gain this knowledge? What is the answer to this prayer? Well, it starts with, with knowing God as He's revealed Himself to be right here. 
in the very book you hold in your hands. This knowledge has, was nothing new for the Colossians Christians or for us. And like I said last week, uh, this, this week I have nothing new to say. Uh, because all that, that we will say is, is in Christ and it's contained in His Word. And so that's what we're going to present. Uh, commentator uh, Dick Lucas, he writes this, Paul does not ask for the Christians a new knowledge. However, rather the proper use of what is already theirs in Christ so that they can better discern the will of God for their lives. It's the Spirit's work through what we have in God's Word that we experience the, the renewal of our minds, that we discern the will of God. It's this knowledge that, that makes the man of Psalm 1 blessed. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. It is this knowledge that preserves Joshua as he is commissioned to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. God tells Joshua in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. It is this knowledge that, that possesses the Messiah that Isaiah prophesies of in Isaiah 11 where he writes, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And this is what Paul is praying for the Colossian Christians, that they are filled with this knowledge, this spiritual wisdom and understanding. And brothers and sisters, this is just what's available to us in Christ today. So today, let us, let us inform our prayers with this truth, with this request. Is this the way you pray for yourself? Do you pray that you might know God and His decreed will more? Do you pray that for others? Do you pray for deeper spiritual wisdom and understanding? Do you pray that for yourself? Do you pray that for our church? Do you pray that for other Christians? Let this be the the heartbeat of your prayer, that we see Christ, that we know Him more. Second, let's look at the second movement of this prayer, and this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Paul's prayer for living, verses 10 through 14. Right knowledge of God leads to right living before God. Right knowledge of God leads to right living before God. In verse 10, we see that Paul prays that the Colossians are filled with this knowledge. He says right there, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Paul wants the Colossians to know God's will for their lives so that they might walk in a manner worthy of God. Now, walking is just another way of saying living. How we walk is how we live. We are to know God's will so that we might know how to live. Paul writes to Titus near the end of his life in Titus 2. He says that the grace of God, it it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Our knowledge of God, our knowledge of the grace of God in our lives, it does something. It's active in our lives. And this is how all theology, all study of God is meant to work. Theology is not just knowing information about God. We know Him in a growing and abiding relationship. A professor of mine recently said this. He said, I can't claim to know God 
unless I am actually obeying Him. I can't claim to know God unless I am actually obeying Him. Knowledge of God does something in our lives. John Calvin, the great reformer, said this, Theology is not apprehended by the understanding and memory alone, but it is received only when it possesses the whole soul and finds a seat and resting place in the inmost affection of the heart. That's what knowledge of God is, is meant to do. It's meant to captivate and possess the whole soul. To know God's will changes how we live. And this is the reason we see Paul praying, so that we might live in a way that reflects and puts on display all that God has done and that He alone is worthy of such obedience. The rest of this paragraph, it gives us four expressions of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, earlier I would mentioned how this is just one long sentence. In the Greek, there's a series of, of four participles. And participles are just descriptions of action. That these four participles articulate what this life that's worthy of the Lord is to be characterized by. These are the requests that Paul is making to God for the Colossians, and this is how we also are called to live. This is also what should inform our prayers for living. And we're going to go back and we're going to look at the, the first two together, and we see them there at the end of verse 10. Paul prays that, that they know the, they have knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit, bearing is the first part of simple, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now the Spirit-filled life is a fruitful life. It's an increasing life. Look at the end of verse 5. As Paul's encouraging the Colossians at the end, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. It's bearing fruit and increasing already in them. Here we see Paul saying that this bearing fruit and increasing, it's already reflected in the lives of the Colossian Christians. This is what the gospel does in the lives of God's people as it, as it takes root in their lives. It bears fruit in every good work. It increases our knowledge of God. So as we walk in conformity to the will of God, as we turn from those thoughts of anger as our child gets out of bed for the eighth time, as we put off bitterness as we see our friends or, or the life of another Christian and we see how happy they seem because they're married or they have more money or they have well-behaved kids, as we put those things off, as we turn away from sin and put on righteousness, walking out our knowledge of God, we will bear fruit. We will be increasing in our knowledge of God. This is the Christian life and this is what God does through spiritual wisdom and understanding. He imparts more of it. For you who are in Christ, you already have it, and God will give you more of it. What an encouragement this is to us. The third participle we come to is the beginning of verse 10, being strengthened. And in our translation, it, it begins a new sentence. May you be strengthened. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul's prayer for living is that the Colossians bear fruit in every work, that they increase in knowledge of God, and here that they are strengthened with all power for endurance and patience. Notice first Paul's use of all. 
Be strengthened with, with all power for all endurance and patience. Paul has used this word already several times in these opening paragraphs. In, in verse 6, when he mentions the whole world, Paul uses this word to, to denote all of the world. In verse 9, Paul prays for all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In verse 10, those who walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, they are, they're fully pleasing. This is a form of all fully pleasing, pleasing to God in every way and bear fruit in every good work. Again, every being a form of all. Why all this repetition? Well, Paul wants to emphasize the, the completeness and the fullness of what God gives to us. All this power that strengthens us, it comes according to God's glorious might, according to His glorious might. This is not our power that enables the bearing fruit and increasing or that enables us to walk worthy lives before the Lord. It's God's power that enables it. God gives what He requires. It is power from the, the all-powerful one, the omnipotent one. There is no greater power possible. There's no greater power available. One, one commentator on this passage said that you can view verse 11 asking God that the Colossian Christians be empowered with all power according to His majestic power. This power is available to you and to me today if you are in Christ. And what's the purpose of this power? Well, the purpose for this power, Paul writes, is for all endurance and patience. All endurance and patience. Now, endurance here speaks to the circumstances we face. Endurance speaks to the circumstances we face. Perhaps you are here suffering under suffering physically, and it's, you've been suffering physically for a long time. Well, with God, there is power to endure. This speaks to, this endurance, it speaks to persevering when, when all around our soul gives way, as the hymn writer says. It helps us hold to that which we already believe. The power that strengthens the Christian gives grace to endure, endure all things. And then patience, it has other connotations. Patience speaks to long-suffering toward people. This same phrase is used to describe God's patience toward His people in Exodus 34 when God says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's patience with His people means that they ought to act in a similar way towards others. God's, God's strengthening power, it equips us for every opposition. Pastor Sam Storm says this, In sum, there is no addiction God's power cannot break. There's no sin God's power cannot defeat. No task which we are called that God's power cannot fulfill. No fruit we are called to bear that God's power cannot produce. No rebellious child God's power cannot restore. No broken marriage, God's power cannot reconcile. No physical disease, God's power cannot heal. That's why Paul calls it majestic power. And this is the power that God gives us in Christ. This is the power for endurance and patience in whatever you face today. Pray for this power for yourself because it's already yours in Christ. Pray for this power for other believers, because it's already theirs in Christ. God graciously gives that which He requires. 
what a hope we have in the power of God. The fourth participle, the final participle that Paul comes to is at the beginning of verse 12, giving thanks. Giving thanks to the Father. Now commentators, are, they're fairly split on what to do with the phrase that comes right before, with joy. And as you see in our translation, it includes it with endurance and patience. We are to go through endurance and patience with joy. Now this is taught in Scripture. Uh, but what is also taught in Scripture is that we are to give joyful thanks. And it based on, on the Greek and the wisdom of other commentators, it seems to make more sense to include with joy, with, with giving thanks. We are to give joyful thanks to God the Father. Now, not every gift we receive brings a smile to your face. I've uh, historically tended to be a pretty sore receiver of, pretty terrible receiver of gifts in my family. I have that reputation. I'm a, I'm a blunt guy and I have little trouble letting others know about that. Uh, I've never been one for a lot of pretense. And uh, I've often dreaded Christmas morning and, uh, in that other people are going to give me gifts. And inevitably the scene, the scene plays out. And uh, in, in my family we have on Christmas morning, we'll kind of go, uh, I don't, youngest to oldest, youngest to oldest, and youngest person gives somebody a gift and then they open it. So inevitably somebody comes, gives me a gift, and... I open it up, and of course we have to open it up in front of everybody, and I, oh, thank you so much, and, and then they kind of draw me out, oh, do you really like it, and thanks for thinking of me, and thanks for getting it, and then they get offended, and then I have to return it, and it just all goes downhill from there, and I'm, I'm seeking to grow, seeking to grow in my, in my graciousness, but, but at the end of the day, not every gift brings joy. We can receive things that we wish the giver of the gift would just return. But for the Christian, for the Christian, we have been richly blessed. And we don't give thanks with joy because we know so little of all that God has given us in Christ. We have a small view of all that God has given us. And so we don't give thanks with joy far too often. We don't understand how profound the spiritual blessings we've received are. Paul here, as he reports his prayer for the Colossian Christians, he can't contain himself as he gives thanks for all that God has given us in Christ, for the all-sufficiency of Christ. Paul prays that the Colossians give joyful thanks because there are certain things that have already been given to these Colossians Christian, Colossian Christians. Just as these things have been given to Paul, just as these things have been given to us. We are the recipients of these gifts that Paul speaks of. When we are united with Christ, when we are one with Christ, Paul here lays out what is already ours. If you have put your faith in Christ, this is what is yours. And if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, this can be yours today. So rejoice in Christ, and let's rejoice in Christ together as we look at these gifts that we have received that Paul gives thanks for. In the first place, in Christ we have qualification. We see this at the end of verse 12. We give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Believe this. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which justifies us by grace alone through faith alone, we will one day hear the words accepted before God. We are accepted in Christ, qualified to stand before God. 
Now, this implies that we were at one time unqualified. We were disqualified. We were without hope when we are without God. But rejoice in Christ. Pastor Sam Storm says this, Whatever qualification we formerly lacked, we now have. Whatever deeds may have disqualified us, they are forever forgiven. Whatever feelings of inadequacy or sense of shame or depths of despair may have crippled you till now, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Thanks be to God. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. What a hope we have in him as we are qualified to stand before God in Christ. And more than that, we've been qualified to share in this inheritance, this inheritance of the saints. Now this inheritance, it's a a theme throughout Scripture. When God makes a promise to Abram, In Genesis 13, God says this, Lift up your eyes, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for for I will give it to you. Later in Numbers 34, God reiterates this promise to the people of Israel as He lays out the boundaries for the inheritance in the land of Canaan that will be for God's people. It's God's promised land for God's promised people, His, His inheritance for them. But this inheritance which God gives the people of Israel is not the same as the inheritance that, that Paul speaks of here. This inheritance that Paul speaks of here belongs to a, a higher plane and a more lasting order than any earthly Canaan. Our inheritance... It's God Himself. Our inheritance is blessed life eternal with Him. John Piper writes this, The highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel, without which no other gifts would be good, is the glory of God in the face of Christ, revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. The saving love of God is God's commitment to do everything necessary to enthrall us with what is most deeply and durably satisfying, namely Himself. What is deeply and durably most satisfying is Christ Himself. And that is what God gives to us. That is our inheritance. Our inheritance is it's established in light. It's imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading. As one commentator writes it, it is radiated by the brightness of the Son of Righteousness shining in His people's hearts. Radiated by the Son of Righteousness shining in His people's hearts. And an inheritance, it's not something we do anything for. It's not something we earn. It's a product of God's gracious gift of adoption. Because we've been made children of God, we have an inheritance. It's not based on anything that you do. You do nothing for it. John Calvin says this, The kingdom of heaven is not a payment owed to servants, but the children's inheritance which will only be enjoyed by those whom God has adopted as His children. They will enjoy it for one reason only, God's act of adoption. We have been eternally blessed because Christ has qualified us and God has become our Father. Thanks be to God. So in Christ we have qualification. Next, in Christ we have deliverance. 
In the second place, verse 13 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Domain, domain of darkness, domain refers to authority. It speaks to the rule that we live under. And there are only, there are only two realms. There are only two realms. You are either in light or you are in darkness. But in Christ, for those who have placed their faith in Christ, you have been transferred. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness, taken up from one kingdom, and placed in the kingdom of light. Thanks be to God. Now in Exodus, we see an echo of this this spiritual and eternal deliverance. God tells Moses to say to his people in Exodus 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. For I am the Lord." This is what God is in the business of doing. God is in the business of delivering those who are in bondage, who are under the domain of darkness. And He transfers them into the kingdom of light. What a hope we have in God. We have been delivered into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Christ Jesus is the One who is the Son of Righteousness. The light that illuminates God's eternal kingdom. When the throng is gathered around the throne, they are, they are proclaiming the worth of God. He alone is worthy. Worthy are you alone. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power. Christ is the center of our worship. Christ is the center of our lives now. So in Christ, we've been qualified for an inheritance. In Christ, we have been delivered from darkness into light. And in Christ, we have redemption. In the third place, verse 14, Paul writes, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven our sins. There is only one place the forgiveness for your sins can be found. Only one. There is only one place where the slate of your souls can be wiped clean. There is only one place where your sins of pride and anger and bitterness and selfishness and laziness and lust can be atoned for. Forgiveness is found in Christ and in Him alone. This is the God whom we worship. God says this in Isaiah, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Micah 7 that we read earlier today, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will cast all our sins into the depths of of the sea. Jerry Bridges says this, just as God said he put our sins behind his back, so here he says he will hurl them into the depths of the sea. They won't fall overboard. God will hurl them into the depths. He wants them to be lost forever because he has fully dealt with them in his son, Jesus Christ. 
So for you, if you are here and you have not placed your faith in Christ, if you have not experienced forgiveness for your sins, if you have not been given the gift of redemption and deliverance, turn to Christ. Place your faith in Christ. There is nothing in you that will save you on that last day of judgment. But all that you need is in Christ. Christ, He is our all-sufficient Savior. So turn to Him. Hope in Him. Trust in Him. Look to Him. Because all the knowledge and power that you need, that, that we need for this life, all the knowledge and power we need is in Christ. There's not something else. There's not somewhere else we go. Calvin says this, all the good things He gives, they're ours. In Him we have everything, and in ourselves, nothing. Now, Paul, throughout the rest of this letter, is going to continue to disclose the implications of all that we have in Christ. And as I thought through how to conclude this morning, there's, there's really no better place to, that we can go than by looking to the passage we're going to be looking at next week. And as we look at this passage, be captivated by what is in Christ, by what we have in Him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Brothers and sisters, let this be our prayer, that we be captivated by the glory of Christ, that we look to Christ for all the knowledge and power that we need, that we find joy in Him, that we bear fruit and we increase in the knowledge of Him. All we need, all we need is in Christ. So let's look to Him in hope. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, thank You for giving us all we need in Jesus Christ. Thank You for the hope that we have in what He has done for us in His shed blood that has worked redemption and forgiveness of sins for us. We are grateful for all that You've done. And may our lives be a reflection of what You've done. May our lives reflect that we are captivated by You. That we have faith that all we need is in You. And may You conform our lives to the knowledge of Your will. For the sake of Your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.